Hey, y'all, and welcome to Least of These. Last week, I had the pleasure of being a guest over on the prosecutor's new show, Legal Briefs. I mean, some dreams really do come true. While Alice was out getting all the baby snuggles, I sat down with Brett and we discussed the case of Tony Mitchell. So much has happened since Tony's episode originally aired, so this is like an update episode with the added expertise of an actual prosecutor. I can't thank Brett and Alice enough not only for having me on the show and bringing attention to Tony's case, but also for their support since I started this whole podcast journey. When I say the true crime podcast community has been welcoming and supportive since day one, Brett and Alice have been a huge part of that, and I will always be grateful for their knowledge, support, and kindness. Without further ado, let's get right to it. I'm Alice. And I'm Brett. And this is The Prosecutor's Legal Blues. Hello, everybody. This is Brett. Welcome back to Prosecutor's Legal Briefs. As most of you know, Alice has had her baby now. Congratulations to Alice. And she's still she's still on maternity leave. We have very liberal maternity leave policies here on the prosecutors. So it's just me, but not just me, because no one wants to listen to me talk. I mean, let's be serious. Everybody, everybody wants to hear someone smarter than me. So I have brought someone smarter than me to talk to you today. We have Leah from the Least of These podcast. Say hello, Leah. Hi, everyone. And if you guys are not listening to the least of these podcasts, you should. It's a great podcast and it highlights really cases where you have victims that need justice and aren't getting it. And oftentimes there's some, you know, maybe some official corruption or things that aren't that aren't being looked at exactly how they should be. And she likes to highlight those. And the reason I thought Leah would be perfect to come on today is we're going to talk about a case. It's it's one of usually on the prosecutors and on prosecutors legal briefs, we talk about cases that are older maybe they're cold cases you know every now and then we'll do one in in the last couple of years but this is actually a case that a lot of you are going to know about it's one that's going on right now and it's a case that really jumps out to you immediately when you hear the facts and Leah's going to tell us the facts of the case but if you've heard of tony mitchell he was an inmate at the walker county jail in walker county alabama jasper alabama who died under some very strange circumstances and it's a case that has been breaking sort of in the news over the last couple of months. And there are facts that are in dispute, obviously. We're going to talk about those. So I will caution you, you should maintain at least a little bit of skepticism. But it's one that a lot of you have asked about and we've wanted to talk about. So we're going to dive into that. But before we do that, I want to give Leah an opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your podcast. Tell us whatever you want to say. Okay, so my name is Leah D. I am host of Least of These Podcasts. In addition to the podcast, I work as a victim advocate, oftentimes for people who are struggling with substance abuse disorders. So this case was one that really bothered me and which is which is why I don't usually cover them this early on either, but it was requested multiple, multiple, multiple times. And as someone who has looked a family in the face on so many occasions who had a loved one who's struggling with addiction issues and said, your loved one is at least safe because they're in jail. So the fact that this happened in jail when he was desperately needed help was was the main reason I wanted to cover it. I can't tell you how many times I've said that and, and someone should be safe in jail. I mean, it shouldn't be a walk in the park, but they should be safe. And I think it's worth saying that usually they are that, you know, this is this case definitely, thankfully, hopefully <laughs> is is an outlier. And you see people online will, will look at a case like this. And I've seen some of this as it relates to this case. And they will say things like, you should never call the police on your loved ones because this is what happens. And that is just not true. A lot of times some sort of intervention is needed. And sometimes it has to be the police. Sometimes that's the only thing you can do. So, you know, I hope us discussing this case and, and what is really a horrific thing, number one, doesn't lead people to think they can never 
engaged the police and the authorities in circumstances like this. I mean, this was a, a rough situation. I'm sure the people who ended up calling the police, even though they were entirely justified to do so, I can only imagine the guilt they feel. But to the extent you want to take action, I think it's don't want to get ahead of myself and don't want to preach too much, but we do not have a lot of resources for mental health in this country. We're much better at punishing crime than we are at dealing with folks who have real problems, mental health, drug abuse. I think we're going to see both of those in this case. So that's just something to remember as well. And like I said, I hope that the facts of the case, and we're going to talk about them and they, they are rough. I hope this is an outlier and, and I hope that to the extent the story is true, which is something else I want to talk about that, you know, we have justice in whatever ways we can get it. But, you know, Leah and I know this case and we're talking about it like you guys do too. I'm going to let Leah give us some of the facts of this case and tell us how this thing got started. Before I do get into it, I do want to say this is an outlier and I have seen great things come from jail. I know that sounds, you know, crazy, but sometimes that's been the catalyst that stops someone and makes them see that they have a problem. And so we've been able to use someone's incarceration to get them into a treatment. So I do want to say that before I get into the details of it, this is an outlier. And that is why I wanted to cover it because so many families, when they're in that position and and they're at their wits end, sometimes it's the right thing to do to call the cops. And a lot of times that can lead to great things happening, even though it doesn't seem like a great thing at the time for the person, you know, just letting them get sober and make clear decisions. So with that being said, let's get right into it. So Anthony Tony Mitchell was 33 years old. He had been living in a home on Lost Creek Road in Carbon Hill, which is in Walker County. He was extremely close with his father and he passed away late in 2022. Tony had struggled in the past with substance use issues. He spiraled further into his addiction. His mom had gone by the house frequently, brought him meals and checked in on him, but he was living there alone. That takes us to January 12th, 2023. So according to the lawsuit, he showed up to his cousin Steve's house. And at first, his cousin didn't even recognize him. Tony had lost nearly 100 pounds and he had always been a big guy. He was over six foot tall, 200 pounds. He told Steve that he wanted to tell him a secret that no one else knew. And he went on to tell him that he had a baby brother who had been stillborn. And that part was true, but that had happened like before Tony was born. And that his parents had hidden the baby's body in a box and placed the box inside the attic of his house. He continued telling Steve that there were two portals in his house, one to heaven and one to hell, and that he needed to tear a wall out, retrieve the baby's body so he could put him in the portal to heaven to be with their father. Steve obviously knew that Tony was delusional, so he agreed to go to the house on Lost Creek Road. He was hoping to calm him down and maybe figure out how to get him some help. So they went to the house, but it was obvious that there was nothing that Steve could do. Tony was suffering a mental health crisis, so he eventually called 911. When he did call, he informed the dispatcher about the mental health concerns and also that he was concerned even for Tony's physical health as well. And so he thought it would be a good idea for them to have an ambulance dispatched. So, you know, I know there's been a lot of, I don't think it's speculation that Tony had a problem with methamphetamine. At no, least definitely. at some point in his life. We're going to hear more about some of the health effects that had had. Do we know at the time was, was just trying to, they're, they're so often so intertwined, the delusions and the mental health stuff, when you combine it with something like methamphetamine. I mean, I've seen this before in, in my job. It really can spiral into this. Do we know anything about his immediate history with drugs? We do know that he had used methamphetamines for years. So you're going to find out here, too, that Tony actually at 33 had dentures because of years of methamphetamine use. It's hard to tell whether it was mental health or whether this was brought on by drugs. I've also seen this happen when someone tries to stop taking methamphetamines. One of the most scariest situations. I don't want to say scary, but just alarming as far as the level of psychosis that was there was when I watched someone try and stop methamphetamine use on their own. So I don't know what had happened with Tony. We do know it was a mental health crisis. Was it a combination? I think it's likely that it was a combination of everything. So officers with the Walker County Sheriff's Office did respond. And according to a post from their Facebook page, they, quote, observed Tony Mitchell in the front yard of the residence. He immediately brandished a handgun and fired at least one shot at deputies before retreating into a wooded area behind his home. SWAT arrived at some point. They weren't actually called in. They were doing a training exercise nearby. So that was fortunate. Tony was taken into custody without further incident behind the house. Okay. At the time Tony was arrested, he had black spray paint all over his face. 
and he told the deputies that he had painted his face black in order to enter a portal to hell inside of his house. By the time he was arrested, his mother, his cousin Steve, the Walker County Sheriff Nick Smith, and public information officer TJ Armstrong were all on the scene, and a photo was taken of Tony by Officer Armstrong announcing the arrest, with his face included, and it was attached to that statement that was made about his arrest. That photo showed Tony, of course, with all the black spray paint. And from the photo alone, it's clear that there were some serious mental health issues. I mean, he's very thin, frail. And that photo was published online. Of course, it began spreading all over. Memes were made. And after an outcry from the community, the sheriff's office edited the picture to only show Tony's body. And so according to the lawsuit at the scene, public information officer Armstrong talked to Steve and told him that Tony had taken that shot at officers, was a little roughed up, and that they were planning to charge him and they would set the bond high enough that he wouldn't be able to get out. But like we talked about before, this was going to be good because everybody thought that Tony would get the help that he needed. And so everybody was kind of in agreement with, with that happening. So Tony was booked into the Walker County Jail on an attempted murder charge. So at that point, you know, his family hadn't heard anything. He was booked in jail. Roughly two weeks later, his family gets a call the afternoon of January 26th. TJ Armstrong told Steve something to the effect of, we've had a time with Tony, that Tony had refused to eat, speak with jail personnel, and that he'd allegedly refused to consent to a psychiatric evaluation. He went on to tell him that it was, quote, the worst case of addiction we've ever seen and that Tony's body temperature had started dropping that morning. He'd been taken to the hospital and he wasn't going to make it because when he got into the hospital, the doctor had asked Tony to sit up. Tony had sat up and suffered a massive heart attack. He told Steve to bring Tony's mother to the hospital to say goodbye. So I want everyone to remember that Tony had sat up and suffered a massive heart attack because it turns out that's not at all what happens. So after three and a half hours of resuscitation efforts, Tony was pronounced deceased at 1.15 a.m. on January 26th at the hospital, but his cause of death was hypothermia. So we have a situation here where a lot of things happen which just aren't that unusual. I mean, you know, it's funny. A lot of this may sound unusual to to a lot of you (laughs) out there, and that's good, but I'm I'm from Walker County, so I have a, a lot of familiarity with this area and a lot of the stuff that was going on here. And if you've ever seen Justified, Walker County is kind of like Justified in that it was everybody used to work in the coal industry or in the garment industry, either made clothes or you you dug coal. Carbon Hill is the reason it's called Carbon Hill because it was a coal mining community and and a lot of the coal mines have shut down while the coal mining has moved away from the United States. And, And in fact, there are companies based in Walker County that used to dig all the coal that now dig coal in South America. And obviously all the clothing stuff is closed too. So Walker County is sort of one of those places where you see a lot of drug use. I remember one time I was on the internet and I saw a Washington Post article about opioid addiction and I clicked on it to read it. And the byline was Jasper, Alabama. And I thought, wow, Washington Post, come to Jasper, Alabama, talk about opioid addiction. So there's a lot of drug addiction and there are a lot of people who sort of live in these tiny little communities off by themselves. Everybody has a gun. You know, the gun ownership in Walker County is probably like 300% because there's so many. And you have this guy, he doesn't have anything and he's, he's doing so much meth, you know, he doesn't even have teeth, but he still got his gun. And when the police show up, by goodness, he's gonna, he's gonna take a shot at him. Right. So really the sheriffs, the deputy sheriffs should be prepared for this and know this is going to come. And, and, th- and I just want to put all this out there because what we're going to learn about the allegations of what happened here. So we have a death in custody. And this has resulted in a lawsuit. And that lawsuit has resulted in a complaint. And a lot of the facts we've been talking about are in that complaint. You can find that complaint online. There's been a lot of media about it. And we're going to hear facts about the things that happened. And I think there is sort of an initial thought of maybe, well, you know, he took a shot at officers. And so maybe they roughed him up a little bit. Don't give anybody that kind of credit. This kind of thing happens so often. It's not unusual enough that I'm like, well, you know, he did shoot at him, and I'm sure those officers are mad, so maybe they weren't thinking clearly. No, what you're going to hear about, if it's true, if things went down the way we're going to talk about, it is just so extreme. Like I said, I am I am reserving a lot of judgment on this one because the facts are so extreme that it's hard for me to believe that this kind of thing would go down. I say that, however, having grown up in Walker County, I will say that 
and there's some of you that listen to this show who are from Walker County because I've noticed your comments before. This kind of stuff, when I saw the story and I saw it was from Alabama, I was like, uh-oh. And when I clicked on it, sure enough, Walker County. So I don't know. On the one hand, I have my sort of natural suspicion because the facts we're going to talk about are so egregious. But on the other hand, I'm kind of like, yeah, maybe I could see that. But anyway, so we have a situation where he's died. And, you know, it sounds like from the way it's described to his family, you know, this is just sort of an unfortunate end to a very serious addiction, which is obviously very serious. We know that based on these sort of undisputed facts from early on. He clearly had a serious addiction that was having a serious effect on his his health. And so maybe this is just something that the police just couldn't, you know, you're trying to blame the police here, but they're just dealing with a very difficult situation with somebody who was very sick. Tell us why, at least if the complaint is true, that that is not right. Why that is not right. So when Tony was taken into the hospital, his internal rectal temperature was 72 degrees Fahrenheit. So he died not just of hypothermia, but extreme hypothermia. And at that point, he had been incarcerated for over two weeks. So there was no reason that someone would be hypothermic in the Walker County Jail. And I just want to point out for everybody that you are considered hypothermic when your body temperature reaches 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius for those of y'all listening in countries with weird ways of measuring temperature. And that's a lot higher than what he ended up with. I mean, unless you were, I don't know, in a frozen lake for some period of time, I'm not even sure how your body temperature can reach that. I mean, we've said he had severe hypothermia. Severe hypothermia is when your body temperature is below 82 degrees. So we're talking another 10 degrees here for someone who has been inside this entire time. How does that happen? And the jail is supposedly kept at 72 degrees. So he was the same temperature as his surroundings, which that doesn't really make any sense either, but we'll get there. So the Walker County Sheriff's Office, of course, issues a statement. They say that on they have the date wrong for one thing. On Thursday, January 27th, an inmate was provided a routine medical check by jail medical staff, and they determined that he needed to be transported to the hospital for further evaluation. The inmate was alert and conscious when he left the facility and arrived at the hospital. Shortly after arrival at the hospital, the inmate suffered a medical emergency and became unresponsive. Life-saving efforts were performed by the hospital, and the inmate was ultimately revived. Remember that part, too. Unfortunately, a short time later, the inmate passed away. So that was the official statement. The family knew nothing else. Tony was deceased from hypothermia. And, you know, they weren't even saying that publicly, like the jail wasn't saying that publicly. But there was another detention deputy. Her name is Karen Kelly. She saw the statement and knew that something was off because she had seen Tony the day before his death. And there were whispers around the jail about Tony's condition when he left the jail. So the sheriff's office is saying this guy's alert and conscious. She is hearing things that, you know, he was not so alert and conscious when he left the jail. And so she goes back into work and reviews the video and she sees what appears to be a lifeless Tony Mitchell being carried out of the jail into the Sally port and placed in a car to be transported to the hospital. So she records the video after, after several days, she sent the video among kind of her coworkers and kind of got like, man, somebody should do something about this, but nobody was going to do anything about this. So then she sent it to another correctional officer in a different jurisdiction. And the video made its way to social media. Have you seen the video, Brett, where he's leaving? I, I have, yes. Did he seem alert and conscious to you? He did not. He does not. He seems he, basically lifeless, is, is what he life, seemed like to me. Even the Alabama AG watched the video, and there were a lot of people mad at him on Twitter because he made the comment that it seems like he's posturing. And they took that to mean like he was faking it. But I see yes. what he was saying. Like mm -hmm. his arm, it almost looks like, he was posturing like he was seconds from death, if not already deceased. Right. And posturing what that means, you know, if those of you who watch football, if you ever see someone who has a severe concussion, you know, if you if you saw the Dolphins play the Bengals and Tua Tungavailoa had a severe concussion, his second concussion in less than a week on the football field, and you see his like the arm sort of, you know, you're, they're involuntary things that happen to you when your brain is essentially undergoing major trauma or in this case shutting down 
And that's what posturing is, is it's like when you assume some sort of contorted posture, so not faking it, but yeah. And, and that's exactly what it looks like when you see it. And just so, you know, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to keep an open mind here because I know these guys who work at these jails, they got a really tough job. And I don't want to, you know, slander anybody without having a lot of evidence to do it. But the video does not fit the description that we were given. We were given a description and a statement about the way, I mean, when you read the statement, you would think they had some concern for him, but he was basically fine, but they wanted just to make sure. And so they took him to the hospital and he just sort of collapsed on the way to the hospital. They revived him at the hospital and then he passed away through no fault of their own, right? If anything... They had precautions in place. This was a protective measure that they were going to take in. But then you see the video and it's, it's not like that. And it's interesting. If you read the complaint, the plaintiff's attorney continuously refers to this officer as a heroic officer for taking the video in the first place. And do you have any more information on sort of her and, and her story? Well, she has filed a lawsuit as well because she was swiftly fired. So after she released the video and it made its way online, she was called into the sheriff's office and they asked her about the video. She stated that she felt the EMS should have been called for Tony at the morning. So she was off shift. I believe it was the morning of the 25th. So it would have been the day before he died. When she went off shift, she saw Tony before she left. We'll get to that too. He was sitting up in the cell and he was asking for water. So the cell that Tony was actually being kept in was a holding cell. It's BK5. We find that out the second, the amended complaint, that it's BK5 and it's what's known as a drunk tank. So he was held there throughout his incarceration. They say for suicide watch, but that cell doesn't have a toilet. It's not a normal cell. It's just a holding cell. So when she left that morning of the 25th, when she was coming off shift, she saw Tony and he was asking for water. She came back in, saw the video. What she saw was Tony being carried. That video is him being carried by four officers and he is not moving. His head is back. When they, Even when they lay him down, when we talk about posturing, his legs stay up. Like his legs don't fall down. His legs stay up and he's kind of tossed into the car and then, and then taken to Walker Baptist. She was fired. And they actually, even the day that it hit social media was the day that she was fired. And they backdated her letter of termination. Now, they didn't say expressly that she was fired because of what she had done, but she was told that the matters were discussed with her. And the only meeting she had been in was one about the video. So she has got a lawsuit of her own, and she is also represented by the same people that Tony Mitchell's family is represented by. And that's, I think, believe his name is John Goldfarb. Did she say, or maybe I just heard this, that she had some concern that if she didn't record that video, the video would no longer exist? Isn't that, isn't that something oh. that she said as well? She made multiple statements to if she didn't get this out there, they were going to cover this up is kind of the way that she put it. So she felt compelled to record it because the moment she saw it, she realized that the statement they had released. Because So she comes into work after he's he's died and she's already seen the statement. So when she pulls the video, she's like, wow, he's neither alert nor conscious. This is bad. And she goes back, which we'll get into what happened the days before, but she goes back some and sees some of the things that were done. So, yes, yeah, she took. She took the video, she secured it, and then even took the extra step of sending it to someone outside because she wanted to make sure that the video was not destroyed. And that's going to be a, you know, employment law is definitely for nerds, but that's going to be a really interesting employment law case. Presumably her her claim will be that she's a whistleblower and that she was retaliated against by the sheriff's office and fired for basically reporting wrongdoing. And it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated area of the law about when you're a whistleblower, how you report it, you know, it's the fact that she released it going to be a problem for her. all sorts of interesting things. So we may follow that sort of tangentially and see how that how that goes. And that'll be sort of a separate thing from this main lawsuit. But she obviously in the in the complaint, she comes off quite well. She's she's regarded as sort of someone who was willing to put her job on the line to make sure that the truth got out about what happened. So if I remember correctly, and you can correct me because you've got, you know, you got all the facts, but he'd been in there for like two weeks. Is that right? Almost two weeks. Yeah. Almost he two was... weeks. And you've noted that this was the drunk tank. We call it the drunk tank because when you pull people in to the, you know, the station and they're drunk and belligerent, you can't just release them back out into the world, particularly if there's no one to take them. So usually what happens is they're put in a cell for 12 hours or so, you know, long enough that they're going to sober up and then you can deal with them, process them, bond them out, all those other things. And because it's it's a place where people stay for very little 
short period of time. It's also can be the place where new arrestees stay until you decide whether they're going to be released, where they're going to be transferred to a cell. There isn't a toilet. You know, it's not sort of when you think of a cell, when you think of like your like standard prison cell where there's a toilet and a sink and they're often the same appliance, which, you know, freaks people out. <laughs> but nevertheless, you have a toilet and a sink and a bed and, you know, the things you need, right? In a cell. Did he, did he have any of those things for the nearly two weeks he was there? He had none of those things. In fact, there's a drain in the floor that they are to use to relieve themselves of liquid waste. But if they have to go to the bathroom, they have to ask, you know, an officer. There's no water. There's nothing. It's a bare cell with a drain in the floor. And because he was on suicide watch at and, and the, the lawsuit will go through this, there are certain points where he had like the paper it's kind of like a paper material, clothing, and at certain points he had a mat to sleep on. But according to the lawsuit, after the 17th of January, he was not even provided so much as a mat to sleep on. And at times, Tony was seen on surveillance completely nude with feces on him. He was, and we'll get into the amended lawsuit because the first one is, of course, the one that the sheriff's department has taken issue with. The amended complaint, they haven't so much taken issue with. And there are points, it talks about how many times he was taken to the bathroom, which is way lower than what someone should be taken to the bathroom. And if this lawsuit, if these facts are true, I mean, he was treated worse than you would treat a dog. It, let's just be clear. And to play devil's advocate a little bit, when you're on suicide watch, that's, that is, it is oftentimes you, you are without a lot of the things you would like to have because they can't give you clothes because if they give you clothes, you can fashion that into a, into a noose essentially. They don't give you any utensils because they don't want you to be able to turn anything into a knife. You can't have a bed with bed sheets because obviously you can use the sheets. I mean, just think of sort of Jeffrey Epstein, right? I mean, people people are very creative in the ways that they kill themselves, uh, particularly in, in jail. So you can sort of understand some of those steps. But the sort of nude covered in feces without even a mat to lay on, that I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine sort of what the what when this lawsuit reaches a court, when there's a trial on this, if it ever gets that far, I'm, I'm trying to imagine sort of what they're going to say. And, and I understand how they'll rebut certain points and just say, look, we had to do that. It's suicide watch. We had to do that. And I assume that the reason they kept him in the drunk tank is is partially because of suicide watch, though, if you're going to keep someone there for that long, I don't know why they couldn't have converted one of their other sales into sort of a suicide, you know, for him. I mean, take the bed out, take the sheets out, but like the water thing. Let's talk about the water thing. So he has no access to water. He can't just like drink whatever whenever he wants to. So what is what is the accommodation that the jail is supposed to make to ensure that he has water in the first place? So also when you're on suicide watch, the meals are different. So you're given a meal and a paper sack and it, you're not given. So I guess everybody else, according to the lawsuit, everyone else is given like this white tray takeout style paper styrofoam and they have utensils. Of course, someone on suicide watch would not have that. So they're given what's called a suicide sack. I don't know what the meal contains, but a drink doesn't come with it. So Tony would have had to have asked officers for a drink anytime that he wanted one. So he would have to be removed from the cell by the officers to take showers. Some inmates will take like cups in there, I guess, what when they're in the shower and get watered that way. But that, not Tony, since he was on suicide watch. So he would have to ask. He would also have to ask, I guess, for something to be done with the floor, you know, to be cleaned after he had urinated and have to ask to go to the bathroom if he needed to go number two, because you couldn't do that because of the grate in the cell floor. So his care was ultimately completely dependent. I mean, he has no way to do anything. It's completely dependent on the officers that are in charge of him. And there's even a heightened thing for him because he's not a standard inmate. He's not someone in their right mind, frankly. And the reason he's been brought in in the first place is because he's suffering from these severe delusions. And even though the jail views this as partially a detox as well, we're going to get him off the drugs. As you said, number one, we don't know we don't know. I mean, I believe in the complaint at one point, someone says to somebody, we'll put him in detox. And when it's over, we'll see how much of his brain is left. Yep, so that was they, a comment. <laughs> so they knew that there was a possibility that there was severe damage here already. And that you, you get him off the drugs, it's not going to matter. All this to say, he's suffering from some sort of mental illness, whether it's natural or caused by the drugs. And he's having the problems from the drugs. And he's going to be going through withdrawals. 
which they know because that's the whole purpose why they're doing this. So he's not even going to be sort of, he's somebody you're going to have to take extra care with, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, as you said, there's a great, you know, you, you can go number one, but you can't go number two, but you have to count on him telling them when he has to do that rather than just what you would expect from someone in his situation and what ends up happening. My understanding is that at various points, there's just sort of feces all over the place. It's all over him. It's all over the, the jail cell. You know, he's not, he's not going to the bathroom as much as he should. He's getting water. He's asking for it every now and then, but there's at least some evidence in the complaint that a lot of times he's asking for water and he's not getting any there. You know, according to the complaint, there's video of him asking for water and people basically just ignore him. Just blow him even, off. Just blowing them, even when they're bringing water to other people, according mm-hmm. to the complaint. I mean, once again, you know, complaints, this is a plaintiff's attorney filing complaint. You're under an ethical obligation to to put the facts in there to the best of your knowledge, but it's the beginning of a lawsuit before you get all the discovery. Things may be a little fuzzy, but nevertheless, I mean, this, I don't think the lawyer is lying about what he saw. I don't think he's just making it up. And so you have a situation here where, as you said, you can say he's being treated by like a dog, but I always make sure my dog has water. Right. Right. So, and, you and know, a relatively clean place to be. Yeah. And a, and a mat. So this is a situation that he's being held in over this period of time. And so you can already see, we got some real sort of red flags popping up, both in how he's being treated. The fact that no one seems to really be taking any extra care for him. And I get it. They're busy, you know, and this is not a mental health place and it's not a drug detox place, but nevertheless, doesn't seem like they're taking a whole lot of extra care. But none of this is pointing to sort of the big question here, because we can debate a lot of things and we can say, well, you know, maybe they're sort of overstating things in the complaint here or there. But one thing that seems to be a rock solid fact, go back to what we talked about at the beginning of this, when he gets to the hospital and they take his temperature, it's 72 degrees, which, as we said, is 10 degrees lower than extreme hypothermia. If I remember correctly from the complaint, his heart is beating four times a minute every yeah every two to two to four minutes he's taking an agonal breath his heart's not even beating. Oh, that's he's right just his ag- heart's not even he's, beating. Just... he's breathing that's right he's breathing. breathing right so how did we get there at least according to the complaint and when was he revived okay because that's my other question so let's get into the note from the doctor this is a fact this is from the er doctor who treated him just like you said. So we'll go through that real quick. The ER doctor wrote in the in the notes, I have limited information on this patient other than was provided by the sheriff's deputies that accompanied him to the hospital. I was told by one of the deputies that he has been incarcerated since January 12th. I was also told by the deputies that the patient has not been eating or drinking for several days. He was brought to the emergency room by sheriff deputies in a car for evaluation. One of our nurses noted the sheriff's moving the patient out of the vehicle and putting him in a wheelchair and went outside and offered to move him to a stretcher. Here's the part you're talking about. At that point, he was noted to have agonal respirations, breathing two to four times a minute. He was rushed into the ER and moved to our stretcher. He was unresponsive and apneic and pulseless and cold to the touch. CPR was stated and the handcuffs were removed. So he goes on to say that his temperature was 72 degrees Fahrenheit, 22 degrees centigrade, and that he was unresponsive, but occasionally made some agonal movements. And then here's where it gets interesting. He says, I am not sure what circumstances the patient was held in incarceration, but it is difficult to understand a rectal temperature of 72 degrees Fahrenheit, 22 degrees centigrade when someone is incarcerated in jail. The cause of his hypothermia is not clear. It is possible he had an underlying medical condition resulting in hypothermia. I do not know if he could have been exposed to a cold environment. I do believe that hypothermia was the ultimate cause of his death. Okay, so I actually reached out to a medical expert when I originally covered Tony's case about that whole thing about an underlying medical condition. And I was told unequivocally that someone to have any kind of breathing or pulse and a temperature of 72 degrees would not occur from a natural disease. So there would have had to have been an environmental factor present. But I think what the ER doctor says here is actually pretty strongly worded for an ER doctor. I mean, you know, he's just he's just getting this patient. He takes a temperature, it's 72 degrees. And he says, I'm not sure what circumstances the patient was held in incarceration to explain this temperature. But the sheriff's office has pointed that out, that he did say, you know, that there could be an underlying medical condition, but what condition? I'm not aware of any condition that would cause a 72 degrees. We, like you said, you're talking the most extreme hypothermia. 
So the original complaint by the family claimed that Tony had been left in the jail kitchen freezer or other frigid environment on the night of January 25th or the early morning hours of January 26th. But that's not what the complaint says now. Right. Yeah. And that, and that got a lot of press when they initially said that. That got a lot of press. I actually find this really intriguing how this probably went down because, you know, when I first heard it, I thought that is not true. I thought that didn't happen. I'm not so sure. You know, there's just no way they put some guy in the freezer. It didn't happen. So that that immediately made me think, eh, I don't know if I buy any of this because I didn't believe that. And a lot of times you see these sort of initial complaints and there's all sorts of crazy stuff in them and it gets all the press. And then a month later, there's an amended complaint. Nobody reports on that. They get rid of all the crazy stuff. And then you always wonder, whatever happened with that? And then like six months later, you find out the case was dismissed and everybody gets in an uproar because how could they dismiss a case where they put a guy in the freezer and nobody ever realizes they didn't. But... There's a really, really, really interesting reason they would have gotten that fact wrong. And we see that in the second place. So so what what was going on there that made them think they would have put him in the jail freezer? Okay, so remember how we were talking about that cell BK5 being nicknamed the drunk tank? There's also another nickname for that cell, which is called the freezer. So if you thought that was bad, if you thought someone being held in a frigid environment or a kitchen freezer, that original complaint was bad. The amended complaint is 500 times worse. It, I mean, that's just my opinion. It goes through. So we also have to remember that this amended complaint, the estate got more surveillance video. So they got more, they got more evidence from the sheriff's office between the time they filed their initial complaint, which was in February. The sheriff's office responded, which they denied almost all of the allegations, almost all, and they filed a motion to strike. So they wanted anything taken out mentioning a freezer and that, you know, the sheriff blamed everything on this. The reason this has gotten national attention is because you guys said he was put in a freezer. And that probably is the reason that it got national attention. That's a crazy claim. But if he thought that complaint was bad, the amended complaint has so much more because they were provided so much more video surveillance. Like the fact that Tony wasn't provided water for up to 70 hours before his death. He was tased. His teeth fell out on the 15th and he was unable to chew food from January 15th on. And the reason that they know this is because Tony's teeth were returned to his family in a sealed property bag receipt with a receipt dated January 15th. So that would have been an entire 11 days before Tony died. They also found more, more surveillance showing that Tony had been sick and they were they were aware of it for almost 11 hours prior to to him being taken to the hospital. And for five hours, they knew that he was struggling to even hold his head up, but he was not taken to the hospital. His instead, his cell was cleaned. He was dressed in a nice new jail uniform and then and then taken to the hospital. Yeah. And so I think you're right. I, I think if at the end of the day, these allegations in the second complaint are proven it's going to be i mean it's a, it's going to be a huge issue for a lot of people and it's and and maybe not just civil liability if the if the allegations and the complaint are, are proven because what you have here is i mean you could imagine sort of the freezer thing that for some reason they had i mean i'm trying to i don't know trying to, you know they put him in there for some reason whatever that's one bad it. decision that's one bad exactly. decision that's one. one bad decision and, and maybe it's one person but if it's true that they that they turn that this place is the freezer and they almost it's like they punishment room, you know, this is where they punish and you know, they punish people who and if you read the complaint, the complaint says there were other inmates in the surrounding cells and it had gotten so cold that those inmates were complaining and saying that they were really cold and that there's video of some of them like shivering. And that was sort of from the ancillary the effects of what's that, going that was on the, in Tony's room. The night of January 25th. So that was the night before he's found. And, you know, at three o'clock is when they first start documenting three o'clock in the morning on the 26th is when they first start documenting that there's a serious problem with Tony. But there was other inmates that were cold. They said they were shivering. They were told to, you know, toughen up. It wasn't their problem. You know, they, they were often also mocked and somehow, and it doesn't really explain how, I don't know if you got how from the complaint that they actually manipulated the cold air to blow, but it was 30 degrees, around 30 degrees outside that night. It was January 25th. It was pretty cold outside. And somehow they actually intentionally blew the cold air into the cells. Did you ever figure out exactly how I read it a couple of times, but I didn't really get it. 
So it's not clear from the compliant. And, and that's, you know, one issue with compliance is a complaint is a simple, brief statement of the allegations. And it used to be they were very basic. And then you had a couple cases, Iqbal and Twombly, that came along that said, hey, when you do a complaint, you need to put enough facts in there that if a judge looks at the facts and assumes them to be true, the facts are true, you have a lawsuit. Obviously, if the facts in this one are true, you know, this is going to survive the motion to dismiss phase of this. This is a civil case. So usually what happens is you file a complaint. If if the facts in the complaint taken as true are not enough, you can file a motion to dismiss and just get it dismissed and say, look, assume everything in there is true. Doesn't matter. Still not negligence or whatever. Dismiss a complaint. If you get past that, you have summary judgment phase. And that happens after discovery. So you have a bunch of discovery. You have a bunch of evidence that comes in. There's evidence that's undisputed. And basically at that point, you can ask a judge, hey, just look at the evidence. And based on the undisputed evidence, if you can decide the case, decide it now, we don't want to have a trial. I think in this case, I don't I don't think you'll have that because I bet there's going to be a lot of disputes about this. And this may be one of the places. It seems like this must have been based on somebody's testimony. Maybe it's this lady who's the other sheriff is going to say, like, look, this is what they did. I'd seen them do it before. Here's how they did it. At some point, they're going to have to back all this up. You know, the defense attorneys have lost their minds over all this stuff. I mean, they've filed sanctions motions and saying that the plaintiff's attorneys are like egregiously out of bounds. And this is basically slander and all this other stuff. So, you know, can they prove it? Can they back it up? I don't know. We're going to have to see. But if you just take the facts in the complaint, even though we don't have all of them, and even though we don't know exactly how everything would have gone down, if it's true, then yeah, I mean, they just, and, and it's one of those, those of you here watching the Gwyneth Paltrow case, <laughs> I bet you didn't think that was going to tie in anyway. So when you have this kind of case, when you have a civil case, you take the defendant as you find them. So in the Gwyneth Paltrow case, there's a lot of discussion about the fact that he had some issues before he ran into her, she ran into him. And so therefore, even though his injuries were worse than you would expect in a small speed collision and skiing, she's still responsible for him because you take them. As you find them, it's the eggshell skull plaintiff theory that, you know, if somebody has like a very thin skull and you barely hit them and it cracks their skull, sorry, it's just tough for you because you shouldn't hit them in the first place. In this case, I say all that to get to the point. In this case, the defense is trying to say, look, this guy already had a bunch of problems. He'd lost 50 pounds before he got there. You know, yeah, he had dentures because he didn't have any teeth at the age of 33. And, and really, this is probably a result of some underlying medical condition. Let's say he has an underlying medical condition, and let's say that underlying medical condition makes him more susceptible to hypothermia. If you put him in a cell where you were intentionally putting the temperature down, and maybe that never had caused you problems before because the, nobody you'd put in the cell had any underlying medical conditions that would cause hypothermia, that's still going to be a problem for you because you took an action that led to this, to this person's death. And for me, it's just really hard for me to get past the temperature. It's really hard for me to get past the body temperature because I, I can't. It's like you were saying, I tried to find something. I thought maybe meth withdrawals makes your body temperature drop 30 degrees. I couldn't find anything that says that. If that's true, if that one fact is true, that he showed up to the hospital with a body temperature of 72 degrees, if that one fact is true, I don't know how this doesn't come back to the sheriff's department. I just don't know how. I don't know how he could have gotten there. And then you add in the other things you pointed out, like when you see the video of him being wheeled out, you know, he looks like he's in the middle of having a stroke or something. The posturing that you mentioned, I mean, the fact that he is not responsive. I think in the defense at some point, the defendants at some point, I think, tried to say that the reason he was in a wheelchair was because he refused to assist in his own transport. So they had to put him in a wheelchair was the way they put it. Well, when you watch the video, it looks like he 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 couldn't assist in his own transport because he was basically dead at that point. And so I don't know. To me, that whole thing from the moment they took him out when he gets to the hospital and that emergency room technician, because that doctor is going to testify and he's going to say, I have no idea how that could happen. And I'm sure they'll have an expert if it gets that far who will say there is no underlying medical condition that could cause this without X. Like unless you did X, you could not get here. So I don't know. I mean, it looks bad. And the thing is, and I've said this several times, I don't trust plaintiff's attorneys at all <laughs> because plaintiff's attorneys are notorious for, for writing these complaints that say all this horrible stuff happened and they can't back it up. 
But that one fact seems absolutely undeniable. The body temperature seems undeniable. That doesn't, I don't know that anyone disputes that. So I don't, I don't know what their explanation is going to be for that. And you have them themselves admitting that his body temperature was dropping. They said that that was the officers that were with him. And, and part of that comes from a note that's here in, in the amended complaint where they first notice that something's wrong with him. I'll go ahead and read it directly from the complaint. This is about 3.30 in the morning. So I want you to remember that this is 3 o'clock in the morning. So take all that away. Here's another problem. Why was he not transported into the hospital until he arrived at 9.23? At 3 o'clock in the morning, they were aware that something was seriously wrong with him. Now, they knew the day that they had him that something was wrong. Tony Mitchell, in my opinion, should have never been in jail. I, I know he took the shot at officers, but his medical needs were far beyond what the jail could provide. And in this country, when especially when someone's a pretrial detainee, now he's still innocent until proven gift, guilty. You can say he took a shot at officers, but he was not adjudicated guilty of that yet. You have the right to medical care. If you're on death row and they're going to kill you the next day, but you start dropping out because you're hypothermic for whatever reason, they, they have an obligation to save you until your execution date. You're talking about somebody who's a pretrial detainee. He, he, he had not even been convicted yet. But they noticed at 3.30, because here's Officer Key is the one who noticed. It says, Officer Key noticed the inmate looked pale. Officer Key and Officer Smith took inmate's blood pressure, checked heart rate and oxygen level. After oxygen level and heart rate read low, Officer Key notified Captain Tidwell and medical staff. Medical staff arrived at approximately 4.17 a.m. Medical advised the inmate would need to go to the hospital when oncoming shift arrived and the oncoming shift was advised. Okay, but that still takes you to six. So let's say that was there, you know, even though they're saying, and there's other notes in here where they say he looked pale and he felt cold to the touch. He's already feeling cold to the touch at 3.30, then at four. So then they say, oh, it's okay for us to wait until six to take him to the hospital. Why wasn't he taken until nine? Because when they start to, to put him in that wheelchair, like you're talking about, he slides out. He cannot hold himself up. It's clear at that point that EMS should have been called. I think EMS should have been called at the very least at 3.30. But by 8 o'clock, when they're trying to put him in this wheelchair and he's he's sliding out, they, they tried to give him a few sips of an insure. That's in the record, too. He was unable to hold that down. But instead of doing anything else, they're like, you know what? Just wait till the next shift comes on. Next shift gets there. They start getting preparations. They clean his cell. I think that speaks volumes as well. While he's lying there on the floor. Now, there is video of this. There's a video of a lot of this stuff that the estate has, and they have released some of it. I have seen the video where it looks like his cell is being swept out by an officer, an officer who the next month was named officer of the month, but that's a whole different story. He, he sweeps the cell out while Tony's lying there. He dresses him. They put him in the wheelchair. He slides out. Then they're informed that another, what do you call somebody who's just coming in? So they're getting another booking. And this one, this it was a female and she was upset. So they say, you know, they have an agitated girl coming in. So they don't take him. When you see him in that wheelchair and you think, oh, he's going to be taken. Oh no, he's wheeled back into the cell for at least another 30 to 45 minutes while they take care of this female. And then they still stand outside after she's gone out of frame. They're still standing outside. They're talking, they're laughing. Who knows what they're joking about? And at some point they decide to go get Tony. They try to wheel him out, but they can't because he's sliding out of the wheelchair. So then he's carried by his arms and legs and put into there. So even if they didn't intentionally make the cell cold, even if none of this was intentional, why would you wait from three o'clock in the morning until nine to get him medical care? And you've known this whole time he's already having issues. You know, he suffers from substance use. In the notes, it says that he thought he was Jesus, even while he was incarcerated. He's not in his right state of mind. Jail was not the place for him. Jail is a great place for someone to sober up when they still have their wits about them. Tony obviously didn't. From the day they picked him up, he was talking about the portal to heaven and hell. And he was obviously very distraught, had lost all this weight. He was already in a critical position. And they just allowed him to stay in that jail, not eating, not drinking. And they were aware of this. They had to know when they picked his meals up, that the meals weren't eaten. They told the medical personnel that he hadn't eaten. They said it had been several days since he had water. They admitted all these things themselves and then turned around and say, oh, he's alert and conscious when he left us. You know, that must have happened at the hospital. He just dropped. You know what? We just showed up to the hospital and he dropped dead. No, you have days of documented abuse. You have days of documented medical issues that need to be treated and weren't. And 
let me just say for those of you who, who aren't familiar with the area, yeah, I've been to the Walker County Jail, not because I was arrested. And assuming they don't have a second one that he was at, which I don't think they do, the distance from the jail to the hospital is like it's a five minute drive, particularly if you're police and you can put on lights and sirens. It's not far away at all. So it's not as if he was fine, which he obviously wasn't from the video. And in the long commute from the jail to the hospital, he deteriorated. I mean, it just is not far at all. They would have been there in five minutes. So I, I'm not I'm just not sure. It's hard for me to sort of get them out of this situation, I guess. And, you know, like you because there's so many different problems they have. Imagine let's let's say that they disprove the freezer thing. Let's say that that is completely disproven. They find out that whoever told him that was lying and he was actually, you know, he was in a balmy 80 degree sail the whole time. And who knows why the hypothermia happened. It was just a fluke of nature, right? Like assume that happened. Well, you still have a duty when you see the deterioration, you know, when you're a police officer, when you have someone in custody to act. And if you think back to the, the George Floyd case, there were a lot of people who debated the culpability of the officers in that case. You know, there were people who said, well, it was really the fentanyl or it was really some underlying heart condition or whatever. The problem that I always had, if y'all have listened to our episodes on that, is assume all that's true. There reached a point where George Floyd was obviously in distress and needed medical care and no one gave it to him. They didn't call for the ambulance. They didn't stop the restraints, you know, and, and that was a problem. And that was a matter of minutes. You know, a lot of y'all have seen that video. I think it's out of Illinois. I can't remember. Maybe it's out of Wisconsin of the EM, EMS workers, the EMT workers. So they come in and they've got a guy and, and they, I can't remember exactly all the facts, but they put him on the stretcher when they put him face down. He ends up dying because of positional asphyxiation and they were charged with murder, right? I mean, you just have a heightened duty when you're in a situation where someone is in your care and they can't leave and you have control over them. When you see something happening, you have to act. And a lot of, even in the worst case, you know, a lot of officers, you hear about these sort of beatings and that kind of thing, violations of civil rights. You know, if you're not the officer who's doing it, but you see it happening and you do nothing to stop, you actually have a duty to intervene in those cases. This obviously is probably, I mean, I'm assume it's not. Assume that this, there was no manipulation of the air, nothing. It still just feels like there was a huge gap there where nobody did anything and they should, and they should have known better, you know? And remember, we're talking about civil here, not criminal. This may end up being a criminal case. I don't know. I don't want to get into that. We're just talking about civil. The civil standards are much lower than the criminal standards. And the burden of proof for the defense is much lower. And like I said, maybe a whole bunch of evidence is going to come out and completely disprove all this, but it seems like they got a pretty strong case, at least right now. Well, once they got access to all that surveillance, because they see it, you can see his cell and you see anytime anybody's coming or going. And what we do know is that the last time video surveillance captured Tony being provided with a drink was on January 23rd at approximately 4.30 a.m. That's January 23rd. He died on the 26th. I would think it would be a crime to not provide someone with water in the jail. You know, I did reach out to a correctional officer who had years and years of experience and, you know, he told me that it it differs with every department. But in his department, if someone doesn't eat their meals, they miss nine meals. So that's three calendar days. That's breakfast, lunch, dinner, breakfast, lunch, dinner. If they miss nine meals consecutively, he has to call a doctor because that in itself is a medical emergency. And he said, I've never even seen it happen with water because that would never happen. They would always be provided water. And if someone quit drinking... If it had been a few hours, you know, a day had gone by and, and I had noticed that they hadn't drank, I would call medical and something would have to be done because at the end of the day, I mean, these people are in jail. Okay. That's, that's a fact, but they're still members of the community and they still deserve to be protected and not tortured in jail. Like that's not a thing. I, I don't, I just don't understand. I don't understand any of this because I don't understand how you can not give someone a drink for three days and think that that's okay. Yeah, and, and that's the thing that's so compelling about the complaint is it's a cascade of things, right? So if it were just the freezer allegation, well, if you disprove that, you're fine, right? But it's not just that. The water thing is another problem. This goes to the underlying medical condition. Say so you prove you had an underlying medical condition, but you didn't give him water for three days. 
<laughs> maybe that's why he had such an adverse reaction. Just oh, he wouldn't there... eat. Well, we didn't give him his teeth, so he couldn't eat. But he wasn't eating. Like I mean, there everywhere you turn, there's another bad fact. I, I would hate. I would hate to have to argue this one. And the, and the, you know, I'm just imagining the interrogatories you could ask. So when you're when you're doing, you know, we talk about criminal cases all the time. We hardly ever talk about civil cases, but. You do it in a civil case, you get discovery. And part of discovery is you get to propound questions to the other side or depose people even. You know, the sheriff will probably be deposed at some point. And you ask him questions like, what is your policy for how often you give somebody water? I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not at least once every three days. I'm going to go out on a limb and say they have an official policy where this person is supposed to get water however much time. And if they don't have an official policy, it's at least a reasonableness test, right? Like what is reasonable? And if it's true that he didn't get water once every three days, I mean, there there's going to be a lot. The, de the defense needs to come up with some explanation for that. Well, yeah, you have the video, but the video system, you know, was on the fritz. And so it actually only recorded every now and then. And, and during those blank spaces, we were just giving him all the water he wanted. He was having cups and cups of water. And you just didn't see that. Like They're going to have to show something. And. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I just, this seems like a case you would love to try if you're a civil litigator because you've got your witnesses. You have one officer who worked there who was fired, which is always a nice fact for you. You have the other inmates there who have no love lost for the sheriff's office, I'm sure, who can testify to how cold it was. And you have all this video and you have the emergency room attendant. Like I said, you know, we're early on in this. We've, you know, we've been talking for a while on this. We're early on on it. There are a lot of people named in this complaint, and I would caution people, don't just go off the reservation, you know, going crazy on this, because who knows, in six months, we may find out that everything we've been told is a lie. And there was another camera that showed all the stuff they were supposed to be doing was actually done. That may happen. But this is one that's worth following, and it's worth following not just for to ensure that we do learn the truth about this, but... As And we talk about this some in some of other cases. If you're out there listening and you work in a sheriff's office, I mean, you need to make sure that nothing like this is happening. Because, as Leah said, the sheriff's offices, you don't think about them that often. But, you know, they're the ones who are responding to stuff like this all the time. You know, they're, they're the ones who are sort of on the front line of defense and a lot of this stuff. And they can be a great resource. And they can do a lot of good or it can turn into something like this. And and it makes you wonder if this turns out to be true and this actually went down, it makes you wonder all the stories that we didn't hear, you know, and all the people that have gone through that place and suffered who we don't know about. Personally, I'm hoping this turns out not to be true. I'm hoping that we eventually we can do a follow-up case and be like, oh, plaintiff's attorneys run amok again. But there are some facts in that complaint that are going to be pretty tough to get around. I also just want to point out, this isn't the first time that this particular sheriff's office have been accused of things like this. I also cover the case of Vincent Rawell, who his family did win civilly and, and got a settlement. And there is still a criminal case open on that one. There's Autumn Harris. She died in the Walker County Jail. over a, She was in there over a $40 theft charge, had pneumonia. OK, and she died because she wasn't given the medication. She wasn't told her father was actually worked at the funeral home and was told by the coroner that his daughter passed away in jail. That litigation is still ongoing. Austin Aaron was a 14 year old who was killed at the hands of a Walker County deputy who was drunk, driving his patrol car on duty, hit the ATV and he died. And, and that's just a small number. If you go to any of the pages, there are pages. I don't know if I could say them here, but there are pages dedicated to Tony. There are multiple family members who who have lost loved ones in the Walker County Jail or at the hands of Walker County deputies. And I just feel like I have to say this. I've been hard on the sheriff's deputies and I am not I'm not anti-law enforcement. I work with good cops all day, every day. They have been instrumental in some of the ways that I've been able to help people. I think she would be OK with me talking about this. One of my very close friends got sober about four years ago. And there was a deputy that came to bat for us when no one else would. She was trying to get charged with probation violation for leaving the area to, to seek treatment. And I called the deputy that we had, had worked with before and said, hey, like this is what's happening. He personally went to bat for her and she's sober today in part because of him, because she could have been thrown right back in jail, you know, taken out of treatment, all these things, because I mean, it's a long story, but she had to be transported from one treatment center to the next. 
And that was leaving the county, which she should have notified someone. But we weren't aware that that counted when you were in treatment. But we've had deputies go to the bat for us. I can't even count the number of times. But there's something about Walker County. And I do want to say that I have never been warned so many times in my life. Maybe you should reconsider, you know, not doing this case by people in Walker County. And I had planned to go to the vigil. There have been multiple for Tony and was told that I kind of need to stay home and, and not show up down there in Walker County after the episode aired. So I do want to point that out. I think I was one of those people who told you. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were. There were several. Yeah, I, look, I'm sure I'm sure everybody has their stories from the places they grew up, but it's a different environment there. And I love it. You know, go Vikings. You're a big fan. <laughs> um, but yeah, like being in law enforcement, I I'll often run into people who ask me where I'm from and I say Walker County and they're always like, how did, how did they let you through the security check? <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, the stories I could tell and the stories other people could tell. There are people who are listening to this right now who are from Walker County and I am sure you are all thinking the same things. You're thinking about all the people who've disappeared <laughs> and the people who've been blown up and everything else that happens in, in Walker County. So I don't know. We'll see how this goes. It's funny because my understanding was things are a little bit better in the jail since since the new administration took over, but maybe not. (laughs) I do do, do want to I do want to point that out, too. You know, when this amended complaint came down, they touted this like, oh, yay, they took the allegation out about the freezer. See, you should always wait to pass judgment. And I was like, well, I'm glad you said that because the judgment is stronger with the second complaint than the first one. But, you know, the current sheriff is posting it all over his personal Facebook page, the sheriff's department page and anywhere he can find a spot reaching out to the local newspapers and making sure everybody knows that the allegation of the kitchen freezer is now gone. So we can all breathe a great sigh of relief there, right? Hey, look, we're going to monitor this. And if it turns out that they are completely exonerated from any wrongdoing, we will be the first to say it because like Leah, we love law enforcement and we don't want to cast aspersions on anybody, but I've read the amended complaint. It is not something I would be touting as, as look at this. There's a lot of damning information in it. And as Leah said, it's information that seems to be backed up by fact. This is the beginning of a lawsuit. Those facts will be disputed and we will see, but this one bears watching. I'll just say that. Well, Leah, it's been so great to have you on the show to talk about this case. I hope all of you are watching listening to her show i assume you're available wherever people get their podcasts i am available wherever you get your podcasts you've talked a little bit about it but give us give us more about your show like if if somebody wanted to listen to your show what's the what's the episode you would send them to the episode i would say oh the what what's what's the one that you like (laughs) hand out and you're like this one this is the one man i don't know i've never been asked that before brett i think The episode with Mary Collins has been on my mind. She was murdered in Charlotte, North Carolina. She had special needs. And this coming week is her vigil week. And I worked very closely with Mary Collins' family. Her case is horrific. I I actually reached out to you on that one when one of the the defendants was granted bond. And he, you know, Mary was murdered brutally. She was special needs. And she was lured into apartment with people that she considered her friends. And she was murdered for no reason. And her grandmother fought harder than anybody I've ever seen fight to try and save her. But unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. And her vigil is coming up next week. So she's been heavy on my mind. And that is one that I worked very closely with the family on. Also, the episodes with Taylor Gruel. I'm really close to her dad as well. But that was like episode four. So I don't know if y'all should go back that far. And if you do, be very kind because things have gotten better. Well, you should all check it out. At least these podcasts. And I think you can tell Leah pours her heart and soul into these cases. And they are cases that really, number one, I think don't always get the attention they should. And are, and are I mean, you know, all victims, nobody deserves to be murdered, right? But when you see people who are, just, I mean, you know, the case you just mentioned, I mean, that that is that is one that really tears at you and you want to see justice. And so I'm glad that you are highlighting those. Well, we want to know what you guys think about this. And if you listen to Leah's show, we're happy to hear feedback as long as it's good. Shoot us an email, prosecutorspod at gmail.com. I'll be sure to pass on all your kind comments. Those of you on the gallery should check it out as well and see what you think. 
Lee, are you going to be at CrimeCon? I think so. I think I'm going to be there sharing a table with the one and only Heather Ashley. Well, there you go. So if you're going to CrimeCon, make sure you swing by Heather Ashley's table and see Leah in, in addition to us. I'm sure we'll all be hanging out together as well. Just more reason to go to Orlando in September for CrimeCon. Remember, prosecutors, 10% off. Leah, do you have a discount code? Do I need to be giving yours out as well? Oh, no. You know I'm sneaking in again this no, she's year. She's sneaking in. Okay. Well, then use and prosecutors, need- 10% off. Yeah, use that one. And you know, whoever brought the Swedish fish to y'all last time, I'm going to need them to bring some more. <laughs> yes, the more candy, the better. That that goes, you know, Alice loves candy. Gummy bears, gummy bears are always appreciated. But, all right, well, we will see you guys soon. It's been so great to have Leah on board. Leah, I'm going to need you to help me as we sign off today. We'll see you guys next time. But until then, I'm Brett. I'm Leah. And this has been the Prosecutor's Legal Briefs. Now my, you know, the plaque that you guys work on, well, my mm-hmm. husband got me instead of saying a guest of a guest. Now I'm just a guest. And then maybe next year I'll just be at CrimeCon. There you not, go. Not a guest of a guest. You know, you can also hang out at our table too, if you get tired of it. Hey, if, if, if there's snacks, I'm there. Yeah. Well, you know, people like to bring us food. I know. Listen that's the first great. time. The first time I met you guys, Alice was trying to feed me Swedish fish. I was like, oh, I there like this table. This is there great. Um, How is she, though, before you hang up? she good? Baby good? Oh, she's doing great. Baby's doing great. You can find Brett and Alice wherever you get your podcasts. With two shows a week, there's plenty to binge. The Prosecutors drop all new episodes every Tuesday. They've covered cases from Casey Anthony to the Murdaugh murders with a perspective you won't find anywhere else. And over on their second show, The Prosecutors Legal Briefs, Brett and Alice break down many of the confusing aspects of the law in a way anyone can understand along with bringing you cases that are in the news right now. Those episodes release every Thursday. So make sure you head over there as soon as we're done here. I'll be sure to drop links in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.